high school reunion. What comes to mind when you hear those words? High school reunion. Is it excitement? Is it fear? Nervous energy? Maybe it's dread. For a man named Stephen Fasto, who lived in Columbia, Maryland, he moved back to his small town after 10 years away from high school, just at the time that he got the invitation to his 10-year high school reunion. And Stephen was a band kid in high school. Some of you were band kids, that's awesome. And you know that you likely did not sit at the cool table at the cafeteria, and neither did Stephen. Um, Stephen was, like most of us, mocked and bullied in the cruel world of high school. And so when he got the invitation to his 10-year high school reunion, he did not want to go. He said, I don't know if I'm going to walk back into that world, because even 10 years later, even decades later, we still feel the same shame and nervousness. What are these people going to think of me? And he said, I don't even know if anyone will remember me. So Stephen looked up a service that, where he could hire someone to go to his high school reunion in his place. You can hire a lookalike to, go, to do something in your place. And so he hired uh, not just any lookalike, but a hotter, more attractive, muscled, confident, funny, charismatic version of himself to go to his high school reunion. And so the team got this actor to play the role of the idealized Stephen Fasto. Uh, because Stephen was bald, they shaved his head, and, um, and they gave the actor brown contact lenses to put in. And um, they found an actor who could like shred on the electric guitar to impress people. And, um, and they gave him some glasses, and they gave him a yearbook, and they kind of familiarized him with the different people and little anecdotes that he could tell about the classmates to convince the class that he was Stephen. And on the day of the reunion, he went. And the real Stephen sat in a parking lot in a van. The fake Stephen had a wire on him, and they listened in from the parking lot like a stakeout um, to see what would happen. And this is what happened. The idealized Stephen, the better looking lookalike, goes in and he is funny and he's confident and he's charismatic and he nails all the right anecdotes and, um, and it works. And he even tells people, I am the lead guitar player from Maroon 5. And so he gets up on stage and he shreds on the electric guitar with his shirt off to be the Stephen that Stephen always wanted to be. Some of you are thinking, that sounds like a great idea. How can I sign this guy up? I you know, could send him to some uh, birthday parties for my kids' friends. Um, but I wonder how many of you walk into church like that? How many of you walk in here wondering if people would prefer the, the hotter, more confident version of you? Maybe if I had it a bit more together, maybe if I was a little bit funnier, maybe if I had my doubts nailed down, maybe if I had the spiritual disciplines under control, maybe if I didn't struggle with these sins that I struggle with, maybe if I wasn't divorced, or maybe if I was single, or maybe if I wasn't single, maybe if I had kids, or maybe if I didn't have kids, maybe if I were just a more attractive version of myself, then I could get involved. 
I could invest and I could belong here. Maybe then I'd have a role to play. Or maybe some of you are actually looking at the church the way we look at band kids in the cafeteria. Maybe some of you are thinking if the church were just a little more attractive, if, um, if the church just had it together a little bit more, if the church uh, wasn't as uncool or uncouth, um, if the church was attractive in all the ways that the world wants it to be attractive, then maybe I could get involved. Maybe I could invest. Maybe I'd even have a role to play. See, we've been talking for six weeks now about the unity of the church. And that is a lofty ideal, but we've got to realize that when we're talking about the church and the unity of the church, we're talking about real relationships, which means we're talking about our fears and our disappointments. And to prioritize unity in the church, to prioritize the relationships with real people, we've got to look at the church from a new perspective. And that's what the author of Hebrews is doing in our passage today. He's inviting us to see the church, both the worship service of the church and the community of the church, through the eyes of Jesus and, the, and, and his work on the cross. And this is what he's telling us. He's telling, telling us in this passage that Jesus is the author of a new and better covenant. In other words, Jesus is our God and we are his people. And he has atoned for the sins of his people. And because we are the people that he died to save, we must do three things. And he tells us very clearly in the text. He says, let us draw near in faith. Let us hold fast to our hope. And let us consider others in love. Faith, hope, and love. But let's first look at the basis for faith, hope, and love. Verse 19, he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. What's he saying here? He's saying that Jesus is the author of this new and better covenant. He's making the same argument that he's been making throughout the book. He's saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that was promised. All the pages of the Old Testament, all of the worship that God's people offered in the Old Testament at the temple with the sacrificial system and the priests and the blood, they were all just a type and shadow of what was happening in heaven. And all of the old ways of worshiping in the Old Testament, all of the types of prophet, priest, and king, they're all here now in Jesus. Heaven has come down to earth. The real thing was here among us. And even more importantly than that, through the sacrificial and atoning death of Christ, through his bodily resurrection and ascension, he actually brings earth up to heaven, where we now worship him today. So here's the point. Jesus died for a people. He atoned for the sins of a group of people. And he calls that people the church. And he wants to gather his people together as the sons and daughters of God in this thing called the church. This is what all the old saints in the Old Testament were hoping for and trusting in. And now it's here. Now the way to God is here. And as we sang earlier, we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. We can approach the throne of God, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but through the blood of Jesus. But the problem is that some people were neglecting the church. 
and in the process they were losing Jesus and falling away. And he tells them, on the basis of all that Jesus has done for you, this is what you should do. Faith, hope, and love. Verse 21, since we have a great high priest, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Let us draw near. What does it mean to draw near? Well, in short, it means to go to church. See, drawing near, this is liturgical language, along with the being sprinkled clean and all the other images that we see in that passage, in those verses there. Drawing near is the Old Testament way of saying, go to church. You see it in the Psalms and in the, the services of the Old Testament that they would draw near, they would approach God, and he would draw near to them. If you look at our bulletins, we have the same pattern of worship as the Old Testament. We begin with an approach where we hear God call us to worship. And so when he says, let us draw near in faith, what he's telling the, the, the believers here is to worship, to continue in all of the ways of worship. And um, it's evocative of the temple and the sacrifice and the altar, which means he's not just talking about private prayer. He's talking about what they do when they get together on the Lord's Day, on a Sunday, to worship the risen Lamb. So, what he's telling all these Christians, some of them Jewish, some of them who were tempted to fall away and go back to the synagogue to leave Jesus so that they would avoid persecution, is he's saying all the things you hoped for are actually here in Christ, and it's even better than you thought. So don't neglect it. You may not feel like that's what's happened when you're gathered together worshiping Christ during a time of persecution, but that's what's happened. You're approaching the throne of God. And for us, it may not feel like we're approaching the throne of heaven when we're gathered here in a courtyard behind mass, but that's exactly what is happening when Christ is offered to us in communion. It's when we sing Mount Zion every week that we are approaching the heavenly Jerusalem. And that's what the author of Hebrews is telling the people here. Draw near in faith. Continue in worship. And then he even says um, later on, he uses this word habit in verse 25. Do not neglect the church. Do not neglect meeting together as some of you are in the habit of doing. And what he's saying there is that our worship forms us. Worship is a habit. You know, it, play, it feels great to play hooky from church once. I'll say that even as a pastor. Yes, it feels great to play hooky from church and go to brunch or do whatever. But if you do that again and again and again, your habits change. And many people fall away because they've neglected to worship God in church. And since our worship deals with our habits, he's saying you can't just give up habits. You're trading them for another one, and you're trading them for the habit of neglect. Because our habits today form who we will be tomorrow. Our present habits form our future selves, which means that if, if we're dealing with faith, we've also got to think about hope. We've got to see a vision of our future selves that we want to build through the gathered worship. And it begs the question, who do you want to be? For that, we need hope. Look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. What is our hope? What is the Christian's hope? 
Our hope is in the coming kingdom, which the author of Hebrews calls the city to come, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The author of Hebrews says that to live as the people saved by Jesus, we must cling to that vision with hope. We've got to remind each other. Remember, this is third, uh, first person plural hortatory subjunctive for you grammar nerds. Um, let us. He's encouraging the people. Let us cling to, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. And so we've got to remind each other together that what we see today is not all there is. There's a new day coming. See, God is, is telling his people, you may not see it, but here's a heavenly perspective on your worship. When you gather, you are actually approaching the throne of God. We've got to look at our worship through the eyes of Jesus, through the heavenly perspective. And Jesus is telling the people the same goes for hope. We have got to see the new day that's coming. Jesus, as our priest, says, I know what you're going through today. I know what you're going through. I look, you can look around and you see COVID. You see all the disappointments and all the losses. There's a lot of reasons to lose hope. But look at where I'm taking you, Jesus says. Set your eyes on the coming kingdom that cannot be shaken. Cling to it. Encourage one another with that vision. And the more you cling to it in hope, the less you will cling to the things of this world and the more you will actually start to resemble the world to come. Isn't that our calling? To live as the citizens of a future kingdom. And we live that out in the here and now, but we live as citizens of this future kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so we live in hope. The scholar and pastor Eugene Peterson put it this way. He said, so why church? The short answer is because the Holy Spirit formed it to be a colony of heaven in the country of death. It is not the kingdom of God complete, but it is a witness to that kingdom. See, as we cling to hope, as we remind one another that this world is not all there is, as we hear Jesus, our priest, telling us, I have a city prepared for you. I have a kingdom that cannot be shaken prepared for you, and I'm going to bring you there. As we get that vision, we actually begin to live out the principles of that kingdom. And what are the principles of the kingdom of God? Love. Love. Which is what he brings us to next in verse 24. Because love is the heart of the king. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. We have a role to play in the sanctification of others, and they have a role to play in ours. So how do we do that? And I want to unpack this a little more. Um, how do we love one another? How do we consider how to stir one another up towards loving good deeds? I think the passage tells us two ways. And the first is to study. Think about this for a minute. Have you encouraged anyone today or this past week or since we began COVID and we were shut down? If you have, awesome. You participated in the sanctification of your neighbor. If you haven't, I'll tell you why you haven't. It's because you didn't consider it. 
See, encouragement doesn't always come naturally. It's something that we have to consider. We have to study and strategize and put effort and energy into thinking about how we're going to do it. Look at the imperative. It says, let us consider. And in the Greek, the very next word is not the next word that we see in English. In Greek, the very next word, it says, let us consider one another. One another is the direct object of our considering. In other words, um, what he's saying is let us consider one another. As a pastor, John Piper said, uh, the meaning is this, study people. And another place in Hebrews, he tells us to consider Christ, to ponder Christ, to meditate on him, to, to study Christ. Here he tells us to study one another. See, to live out our calling as the church, we, we don't just need to study theology. We've got to study one another. We've got to consider one another. Um, now, let me ask you this question. Can you do that? Can you do this type of encouragement and observation and considering in a 70-minute worship service once a week by sitting on the pew beside people? Or in this case, worship grid in the courtyard. I don't think we can. I don't think we can. I think what the author has in mind here is that we would actually be in relationship with one another. That our commitment to the church is not just a commitment to a meeting once a week, but it's a commitment to be in a family. That's why he begins by calling them brothers, brothers and sisters. You're in a family now. You've got to know one another. You can't encourage anyone, anyone if you don't know their name, if you don't know what makes them tick which means you've got to consider how different people are wired and what's going to encourage the person, the, the right word for the right person to encourage them. You've got to observe them so that you can put wind in their sails through encouragement. If you're wondering where to start, um, I'll take one for the team. You can encourage me. And my love language is expensive gifts. So... Um, it's, I know it's the thought that counts, but in this case, it really is the amount of money. Um, I'm kidding. Um, but what I'm saying is that to love someone, we know you've got to tailor it to the person. And it's the same with encouragement. You've got to know how people think and, and, and where their passions are and where their hobbies are. You've got to watch them for a while so that you can know what their gifts are, where you see the fruit of the Spirit in their life. See what we're doing when we consider is we're looking for the fingerprints of the Holy Spirit. I will tell you, if you observe me, the fall will be very easy to find. You don't have to observe or consider very much to see the sin and the suffering and the shame of my life. But if you want to see the Holy Spirit at work, you have to put on the eyes of Jesus. You have to look from a heavenly perspective. You have to imagine your brother and your sister as God intended them to be. And then encourage them to get there. Put wind in their sails to get there. See, we have a role to play in one another's sanctification. As we're going towards that heavenly city, we've got to walk there side by side. And this is even more um, evident in, in the next thing he says. Because as we use our words, those are great. As, as great as our words are to encourage people, as we... As we want to encourage them, we think about them, but then we also actually call them and text them and write them emails and have meals with them and say, 
Um, when we see them do something good, we thank them for it. When they serve us in some way or someone else, we thank them for it. We use our words in all those ways to stir one another up to loving good, good deeds. But as good as our words are, we actually need something more than our words. We need our presence. We need a relationship. We need to walk side by side. And that's why the author tells us that we need to not just study others, but to shepherd others. He uses this word encouragement. He says, um, encourage one another in verse 25. And by the way, he says, all the more as the day is drawing near. In other words, uh, our need for encouragement does not wane over time. It actually increases. We need it more and more and more and more. Um, if I were to ask you who could use encouragement today, most of you would probably raise your hand if you're honest. Um, we need it. We need encouragement to get to the city that we're going to. And what encouragement is here is, is actually more than words. It's actually this idea um, of coming alongside, of calling someone along beside you. And the same word is used as one of the works and titles of the Holy Spirit. And so we gather others to our side and we strengthen and encourage, which means we have to shepherd one another. Which is another way of saying we've got to show one another what love and good deeds look like. Have you ever been shepherded by anyone? It's a sweet thing to be shepherded. It doesn't matter if it's in the church or in your vocation or in any other thing. Um, this is how we learn is when people come alongside us and show us. I remember the first time I went uh, mountain biking. And I have to tell you, I'm not an athlete, uh, but what I make up for, um, what I lack in skill, I make up for with ignorance um, over and over again. Someday I'll tell you about the Black Diamond Hill that I went down the first day of snowboarding. Um, but the first day of mountain biking, I showed up because there was a mountain. I borrowed my brother's bike, which weighed 40 pounds. He bought it at Walmart. It was not really meant to be taken down a real mountain. And I got to the parking lot, and there was a guy who was, like, unloading this really expensive bike, I imagine, I mean, thousands of dollars bike, and he was putting on, like, a helmet. Like, I don't know what you need a helmet for to go mountain biking. But he was putting on a helmet and, like, Lycra and special socks, and he even had special shoes to wear to go mountain biking, and, like, bottles of water and gels and stuff. And, and I was looking at him, and he was looking at me in my jorts, and no helmet, and uh, he started to ask some questions, and he said, um, he, he was like, are you going to go down that mountain? Are you going to actually ride this thing? And I'm like, yeah, I heard this was like one of the best you know, trails in the southeast. And he was like, yeah, I'm from Texas. I came here to ride this. And um, he was like, why don't you ride with me? And so I did, and I followed him down one of the most tactical downhill mountain biking slopes in the southeast. Um, I think this guy saved my life. He rode with me. He gave me water. He gave me food. He made sure that I got back to my parking lot safe, um, albeit many pounds lighter and with lots of uh, blood and sweat. Um, but it was a beautiful thing. And you know what? I cost him his ride. He had driven from Texas to ride this trail, and yet he rode it with me. Too often in the church, we disdain immaturity. Have you ever heard this, that the church is the only army that shoots its uh, victims, or sh sorry, shoots its injured? 
uh, sometimes we disdain immaturity instead of bringing someone else along and showing them how to love, how to do good deeds. Some of you need to shepherd others. You've been around the block a time or two or ten, some of you, um, and we're glad that you're here and you need to invest in other people and show them how to love Jesus. But notice that he doesn't say old Christians encourage younger Christians. He doesn't say experienced Christians encourage the new converts. He says, let us consider one another and encourage one another, which means that we've got to engage in mutual shepherding. It means that the apostles have every bit of a need to be encouraged as the new convert, which means that if you are here today, you have a role to play. You have a role to play. You are written into the script. We need you. In fact, I can't be who I am meant to be without you. And vice versa. We need one another's help. Which means um, we need to walk side by side to the heavenly city together and arrive together. Which means we're back to where we started because we need faith and we need hope. We need to see ourselves and one another as Jesus sees us, sprinkled clean by the blood of the Lamb. We need to have a vision of the future of our brother or sister beside us and, and actually put wind in each other's sails to get there. I see a future version of you, and I'm going to help you get there. And Jesus wants us to arrive together. Do you remember Stephen? Um, guess what happened at his high school reunion? Well, the lookalike eventually um, stopped convincing people. Someone exposed him and said, you are not the real Stephen. And then it spread throughout the party. And other people started saying, that's not the real Stephen. And then people started saying, that's kind of sad because I was actually looking forward to seeing Stephen. You know, I actually wanted to see the real Stephen. And guess who heard that? Stephen, in the van with his headphones on, heard that. And he said, you know what? I'm going to the party. I'm going to get out of this van and I'm going to go. And he went into the party and everyone applauded that the real Stephen was there. Will you come to the party? Will you come to the church? Will you be the gathered people of Christ, encouraging one another in faith, hope, and love? Because God wants you here. And so do we. We need you here. And hopefully we'll arrive hand in hand at the heavenly city together, worshiping the slain lamb who died to bring us there for his glory. Amen.